advisory to those who are not animal lovers, open to new ideas, or interested in integrative holistic healthcare for your pets, and believe that prescription diet is the best food for your pet. This podcast may offend your sensibilities. Have you ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do, but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang, and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, everyone. This is Amrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today's episode is with Dr. PJ Broadfoot. If you're looking for a horse-crazy, rodeo-loving, barrel-riding lady who's lectured around the world and worked with several pet nutrition health companies and featured in the Truth About Pet Cancer docu-series, who is never afraid to think out of the box to help solve your pet's health issues, then Dr. PJ is your vet. This is her story. Who is Dr. PJ, please? Oh, well, I, I guess that's a difficult... Nobody's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a grandmother, Nana. I, I'm a wife. I'm a veterinarian. I love horses, love dogs, you know, love my work, uh, have an inquiring mind. Um, I guess that probably is me in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> have you always? I wear a lot. I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> um, were you always an animal lover when you were young? Oh, yes. Yeah. It's kind of funny because my, when I was really, really young, my, my mother was raised on a farm and my, so they had, you know, farm dogs, a a lasty kind of a collie that I, that was the first dog I actually remember very much. But then I was, my mother never wanted dogs in the house. And then my dad brought home two puppies in the dead of winter in Kansas. And so they ended up in the house. And I don't know that she was, she had dogs in her house forever more after that. She was sometimes three or four dogs at a time, you know, because all the kids would have their own dogs and they'd all live in the house. It was crazy. It's, it's a good thing it was a big house. <laughs> so yeah, I like, I, I always did like animals and I was horse crazy. I just was nuts about horses. Uh, in fact, I, I absolutely harassed uh, my dad for years and years and years and years and years because I wanted a horse and my mom actually bought a pony when I I think I must have been like seven or eight years old she rescued it. it was a scrawny skinny thing 
in a pasture somewhere in Phoenix and she, she bought it. And I remember we didn't even, we didn't, she lived in the front yard at the, at the farmhouse and she was the meanest pony. She was really pretty. She was a Palomino pony. She was mean. I can remember one time she had my cousin and I up a tree. Wasn't going to let us down. So it, it was, it was an, it was an adventure. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I think looking back, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm surprised I still liked horses after her. Cause she, she'd knock us off, drag us. It was just, <laughs> but I, I, when we, we lived in Wichita and when I finally, when I was 12, my dad finally gave up and bought me a horse. Well, you know, it's one of those, if you knew, if you knew then what you know now, they bought me a two-year-old. I mean, she wasn't broke. She was, she was young. And, you know, she was lame all the time because she didn't have, she didn't really have good legs underneath her. And I didn't know, you know, not to trot her on, on a hard ground on roads and stuff like that. So she, she, I'm surprised she survived me actually. Um, but I ended up trading there. Of course, I cried for months after I traded her and every, I went and checked her. Like when she got, when the place where she lived, I went and checked her on her like every year a couple of times a year I'd go check on her and make sure she was okay but I ended up buying a kind of a crazy um, bay horse that wasn't even really very pretty she was she rode like a jackhammer and kind of had a long head on her but I just liked her and she was as hard-headed as I was and that mare and I went a lot of places one high point youth high point state high point women's high point nationals uh just a grade grade $250 grade horse and she turned out to be just a spectacular horse but she she spent about the first thousand miles I think she ran away about 500 miles I couldn't stop her I mean I couldn't she could take her head away from me and just run and I finally just put her in a little corner in the arena until I finally got some semblance of control on her you know she turned out to be a great mare but man <laughs> she was a little bit of a nutcase when I got her so, but she, she, she changed my life because she gave me lots and lots and lots of confidence about, you know, what I could accomplish, what I could do. Um, just, you know, nothing ever really mattered as well, except for the horses. So, so you're, you're like horse crazy, loving lady. I was horse crazy. And I thought I was going to be a horse vet when I got into vet school and it, you know, really didn't. It, it didn't, it didn't work out. I was close to, I'm close to a, a racetrack here. So I thought I would do race horses, but you know, I figured out that they, you know, they're a commodity. They're not, they're not pets. People don't love them. Like people who own horses as pets. Um, so that was really hard for me. And um, so, and then I, so I decided I really didn't want to do racetrack work at all. Uh, and then, you know, I did some farm calls and stuff when we first, when we first opened our own practice in Arkansas but I had at one time I had four kids playing ball in the summertime and something had to go and it was farm calls. Like I just couldn't do it all. I couldn't, you know, we, we took, you know, we worked six days a week and took all of our own calls and it was exhausting and then went to all the kids ball games. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what, what made you decide that you wanted to be a vet? You know, I think the, the moment that I remember the most or moments, uh, I was probably in about third or fourth grade and we had a litter of golden, not golden, retrievers, uh, German shepherd puppies. And we had taken them in for shots and something happened in the communication 
and they got wormed, but they didn't get their immunizations and they all came down with distemper. And, uh, and we lost the entire litter actually, you know, despite in everything we knew to do then. And my whole family's medical. So, you know, we, they, you know, they got as good a care as we knew how to do. Um, my dad, my stepdad was a doctor. My dad, my, my dad was a neurologist. My stepdad was an internist cardiologist. My mother was a nurse. My grandfather was a doctor. So we were inundated with medicine. But at the point in time when those puppies got sick, I decided that I wanted to be a veterinarian when I grew up. But, and I went through some other <laughs> stages of things. I actually went to college for a semester uh, to be in theater. I, I considered a theater degree. <laughs> and then I got to thinking about it. I was, you know, I'm five foot one. I said, I'm too short to be a leading lady. Um, I didn't want to teach and I couldn't take my horses to New York. So what was I, what was I going to do with a theater degree? So I decided to backtrack again and I went to Kansas State after that and, and applied to vet school several times. So people who want to be veterinarians, if you don't get in the first time, you just persist. Wow. Wow. And were your, were, did your fam, were your family supportive of the idea of you becoming a vet? <laughs> well, my, my stepdad said, don't you want to be a real doctor? <laughs> So we always joked that I didn't want to be an RD. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a DVM, not an RD. So, and I, you know, my, I have a sister who became a doctor and we have my, one of my kids is, is a MD and we've got nephews and nieces, you know, in med school or going to med school. So, you know, we got plenty, we've got the doctor and, and nurse stuff sewn up. They didn't, I, I, I really, I, I was never interested in becoming a, a medical doctor or a nurse. I was just always the veterinary medicine always intrigued me. And when, when did you start? Because from what I understand about vet school and what they teach, it's very conventional in their thinking and approach. And mm -hmm. how did you change your direction to a holistic approach? Breadcrumbs. <laughs> breadcrumbs. Um, you know, when I was in vet school, it's really funny because we were very, it was, it was an ag school and it was very conventional, but oddly enough, uh, I think maybe my sophomore or junior year, they have a, a student chapter ADMA and they would bring speakers in to talk. Well, they brought in a couple of acupuncturists of all things at Kansas state. They brought in a couple of acupuncturists. And so I knew there was something else out there and I never learned, I never learned acupuncture. I, I, at one time wanted to, but I had four kids like under the age of six. <laughs> I could not spend six weeks somewhere else and leave them with my husband. So um, I just, and, and now I'm too old. My, my hard drive is full. I can't stuff Chinese medicine into my brain. It always makes sense when I'm listening to somebody else lecture. Uh, but then it leaves me entirely. By the time I get back to my practice, I think, what do you say about yin and yang on this? <laughs> so anyway, that was the first clue I had to the, that there was a much bigger world out there. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, um, when, I, when I was, there was a lecture given on um, where they talked about non-steroidals. And one of the papers that was presented was that butazolid and retarded bone healing in racehorses. 
And yeah, which, so we're talking, I'm old. So we're talking about in the seventies that these, that these work, this work was being done, but then I got out and I thought, what else is there? No, there, I, I've never heard of, there's nothing besides non-steroidals. Non-steroidals and steroids were it in 1981, as far as I knew anyway. Um, and then, you know, I had a dermatology professor that said, you know, steroids should be a line of last resort. Got out of school and it was, what else is there? Now, this was long before Apoquel and Atopica and Cytopoint. And uh, so, you know, I'm, so I'm looking for something else because they said that should be a line of last resort. And there was just not much. There was steroids and antihistamines. That was about it. And then when I was in school, one of the teachers just happened to be um, presented a, something about the microbiome about, well, you know, that word wasn't used then. But they were basically talking about fecal microbial transplants. So when I got out of vet school, the I worked on a, a movie, a, a mini series, which I'm sure you've never heard of because you're way too young for that. It was called The Blue and the Gray. So it was a Civil War, you know, mini series that was done. And my my horses and I both worked in that mini series. And I they kept me there because they had all these horses and mules, bunches of like sixty head. Of mules and horses and but one of the horses in particular they had brought from hollywood he was probably 30 years old uh he was called a falling horse and that's actually why they hired me to work on this movie was that they body doubled him and be, he was supposedly blown up on the street you know hit by a cannon or you know on the streets in atlanta and the people were so hungry that they would just cut these horses up for meat so so they actually hired me to to anesthetize another horse on the set to be a body double for that horse. And, but anyway, he colicked and none of the drugs worked. None of the drugs that I learned in vet school, nothing worked on this horse. And I was absolutely panic stricken that this expensive horse was going to die on my watch while I was supposed to be taking care of him. So I just happened to remember something about, you know, the, the microbial transplant. So I literally got poop from multiple different horses, made it into a slurry and I put it down and with a stomach tube and he just completely turned around. Wow. So, <laughs> and then another one of those breadcrumbs, one of my favorites was there was a, a cattle vet that said, you know, and I wonder what later on, I wondered, did he say that to every class that came through or was it just our group? But he said, you know, if you can't get that cow over it, take a slug of blood out of the jugular and put it back in the hip. And I thought, well, that was just a strange thing to say. Well, you know, years later, I'm learning about blood therapy, autologous blood therapy in Germany. And so, and I've written lectures. I've done lots of lectures on blood therapies, on, on autogenous blood or autologous blood therapies. But it always stuck in my mind, why? why did he say that? And so as it turns out, it wasn't all that long ago, because you know, I've been lecturing probably for 20 years or so. But several years ago, I was redoing my autologous blood therapy. And I thought, I, I want to find out why he said that was it turns out Mayo Clinic in the 30s and 40s, which is a big human clinic here, uh, that does, you know, they get all the really, really tough cases, was doing autologous blood therapies in the 30s and 40s. So there must have been something written up. You know, this was before the internet. You had to read journals to get to get this information. So the only thing I can think of was that that particular uh, cow doctor, bovine physician, 
took had read a journal article or something about blood therapies, and he must have done it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have known it worked. But, you know, it's just it's kind of funny, though, because those things kind of stick with you. And then later on, they come back and you think, well, that's that's what that meant. Or that's that's why he said that. Wow. So, and so I, I my whole life has been that, you know, I, my when I got into vet school, a, a friend of mine that I'm still friends with, um, I, when he got out of vet school, my horse was hit, was one of his first really big cases. She put her foot through a divider panel in a trailer and broke the bone inside the hoof, which I did not know until I was in vet school. I was looking at her radiographs and I went, she had a fractured third phalanx. So the toe was broken on her. She had damaged that much. Well, she developed an infection in that. It was a mess. It was absolutely a mess. And I was away at school. He actually slept in the staller with her one night when she colicked. So when, when he went, when the, the third year I actually applied to vet school, they kept making me take uh, chemistry classes that, that I already had. Uh, I had probably 20 some hours in chemistry by the time I got into vet school. The third, the, the third year I applied, he wrote, he wrote a recommendation letter and said, let her in. <laughs> She'll be good. So we've been friends forever. And he moved to, he moved to um, uh, Indiana. So, but we've kept in, in touch all these years. In fact, last year I went with him to Romania to lecture, and so he got he actually got me that that lecture invitation. But I used to call him when I'd get these really weird horse cases because he's really really good on horses. And I called up and I had a mare with tying up syndrome. One of mine, my barrel horse, had tying up syndrome, and he said, "Well, try this stuff called DMG." And that company has something that's pretty good for arthritis. It's called uh, Glycoflex. So, you know, I'm ordering it from Vermont. You couldn't get it, you know, just from your local distributor. So I thought, well, I'll just get some of this Glycoflex while I'm at it. Well, the DMG worked great. We use it on a lot of horses that had tying up type syndromes. It's good for a lot of other things too. But the, the Glycoflex was, um, was primarily for arthritic dogs. And so we'd get these dogs that, you know, the owners were ready to give up on them. They couldn't get up anymore. They had a terrible quality of life. The butazolidin and aspirin, which is about all we had then, uh, and maybe Arquel, which must, must have been deadly to the gut because it didn't stay on the market very long. Um, but, I, you know, you, it was, those were last-ditch effort cases. And you'd say, well, let's, I've got this new stuff. Let's try it. Oh, my gosh. They would be up and running in a couple of weeks. And it, it just completely changed the way I practice medicine. Because all of a sudden, I had, you know, I knew that mute retarded bone healing, but I didn't have an option. All of a sudden, that just opened this whole world of I have an option now, and um, and we have, we sell a lot of the human for, uh, form of that. We had we'd have people come in and say, okay, I don't know what the dog's taking, but I I want some of that. <laughs> so so we we have a lot of people who take the human form of of glycoflex. It's really funny. Um, in fact, that for, at one time they they called it. Uh, glycoflex for humans they that it's actually called perna so um it's a but it's you know it, i knew then at that point in time i knew i had options and and every few years an option drops into my lap it's like god drops me another breadcrumb try this here try this here try this so when i was in germany well the i think al i started using algae in 19 
yeah, in 90, the fall of 95, I started taking algae because I, I was really fatigued and I was looking for just a good nutritional resource. And oh my goodness, it, it just about changed the way I, it, it changed my life because I was horribly fatigued when I started taking it. My brain was not, I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep a, a train of thought going. I'd be in the middle of a sentence and forget where I was, which is embarrassing uh, for one thing. And, and, you know, you look like a lunatic and I thought, golly, I, you know, I'm only 30 some years old. What am I going to be, what am I going to be like when I'm 50 if I can't carry on a rational conversation now? So when I started taking the algae in the fall of 95, the first thing I noticed that it was that I was sleeping better. The second was that my brain came back and in about May of the next year, May or June, I thought I haven't had an allergy attack. I had actually ruined my intestinal tract. This is all long before leaky gut, before we knew what it was not before leaky gut, but before we knew about leaky gut, um, I had taken about six weeks of non-steroidals for, uh, for a bad shoulder. And at the end of six weeks, I had a gastric ulcer. I had diverticulitis. My allergies went absolutely nuts and it didn't do a thing for the shoulder. It was still horribly painful. So, <laughs> so anyway, I, when I started taking the, I, when I, I started taking glycoflex when the, um, the human glycoflex, when the, not when the non-steroidals didn't work, like, you know, it was one of those dumb, you know, how dumb can I be? Okay. The dogs are doing better than I am. Why didn't I, why did I wait to try it? It's like, what a dope you are. So, you know, within a couple of days, I was starting to get mobility back in my shoulder. It did not fix my leaky gut. Um, it, that took a while. Um, but so I had these horrible, horrible allergies. I lived on antihistamines nine months out of the year for more than a decade. Well, so the algae enzymes and probiotics I started taking in the fall of 95 in the spring of 96, I thought I haven't had an allergy attack. I have taken one antihistamine since that, the fall of 95, one antihistamine. I gave away a $350 bottle of Claritin, never broke the seal on the bottle. So there was another one of those things that kind of just drops in, drops in your lap. That was, I got a tape in the mail about that. That was in the days when they sent out these cold market tapes. So I got this cassette in the mail about that algae and I thought it sounded good. So I thought, well, you know, why not? I might as well try it. I had no earthly idea what that was going to do. Um, I started my kids on it when I realized, you know, that, that it made me feel better. One of, one of my kids was a terror. I love him dearly, but he was a terror when he was a kid. Uh, we called him, he was like ricochet rabbit. You, could, you know, he, all my kids could come to my clinic except for him. I could not control his behavior at all. I feel sorry for parents who can't control their kids because I had one of those. But, uh, and so he was in, in, in daycare and, oh my gosh, you know, you get a letter every other day, every other week about, you know, he knocked somebody down. He was, wouldn't sit in his seat. He was, you know, he was just all over the place. So when he started taking it, it was a little over a week. I thought, okay, what did you do with my child? He was completely different. So I asked him at the daycare, I said, have you noticed anything different about Burke? And they said, yeah, he's actually sitting in his seat and he's paying attention. <laughs> I said, I thought he'd changed too. I said, he's been taking algae and, and I, I was just completely floored. And they said, oh, they thought he was sedated on Benadryl because he told them he was taking allergy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, so we, actually that, he's the, because of him, 
that's how I got started actually doing lectures because I was lecturing on kids issues um, because I was concerned about the drugging of children. Um, when I was in vet school, so my, my pharmacology book from veterinary school has this list of drugs in, um, when Ritalin was one of the, when I was in vet school, they used Ritalin to, to hop racehorses because they didn't have a test for it. It's speed basically. So it's, a, it's called, it's methylphenidate. So it's in the same drug group as methamphetamine, amphetamine, ketamine, PCP, LSD, cocaine in the same, you know, in that same category of drugs. So when I found out they were giving it to kids, I was horrified. I mean, horrified. So when I saw the difference in Burke, I thought, well, you know, how many kids are suffering from poor nutrition, lack of, you know, his, what happened to him was he was on antibiotics continuously for ear infections. We wiped out his gut. So he had behavioral problems, probably from lack of B-complex vitamins and lack of omega-3 fatty acids. And, and within 10 days, if it had been more gradual than that, I don't know that I would have realized it. But it was such a profound change in him that I, there was no doubt that it wasn't the algae that changed it. And then I had that one of my other kids, I have four, so I have, there's lots of stories of children. Um, my second son had asthma. His first asthma attack put him in ICU. So when he was a year old, so he had, he was a critical asthmatic. And um, so whenever he would start coughing, he, he would start on the updrafts and the steroids. I hate steroids. I hated steroids from vet school, but that was the only thing we could use, do to control him. Well, so all of my kids, including a three-year-old, two or three-year-old took algae when they were little. And I think it probably was six months, maybe a little bit longer into that. We were going somewhere and we did not have the updraft unit. We didn't have steroids because he hadn't been coughing. And he started coughing on the way. And I went, oh my gosh, we're going to have to get up there and write a script for steroids somewhere. And, and you know, it never, that's the first time since the, he was, he was six. So it was the first time since he was a year old that he did not progress into a full-blown asthma attack. And he, his last uh, asthma inhaler outdated when he was probably seven or eight years old, never got another, never did it again, was never on, never on steroids again, never on inhalers again. So the algae completely repaired his asthma. So, uh, and because of the, because of the allergy and the, um, in my case, we started using it for dogs, for allergic reactions. Um, it, we use it for, it's a, it's a huge immune modifier. The blue green algae is the one from Klamath Falls and there's other algaes out there, but this particular one is an unbelievable resource really is. Um, and then the fall of 96, my mother, well, my mom came to visit in 90, in, in the spring of 96, we knew she was sick. It was like, there's seven kids in my family. So all the girls would get together and something's wrong with mom. She doesn't feel good. She's coughing. She's tiring. Usually she did run circles around this. And, you know, it was just, there was something obviously not right about her. And she was coughing all the time. And so we, we just started her on, I just started her on the algae. Well, she was diagnosed in September of that year with breast cancer. And, you know, she made it through a mastectomy, never did chemo, never did radiation. She's 92. She'll be, let's see, 
yeah, she'll be 93 this year. Oh. So, you know, she, the, and, and I know the algae made a big difference. And if you look at the data on algae now, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a light emitter. It's a, it's the bottom of the food chain for omega, omega three fatty acids. It grows in a lake with a 35 foot mineral base. It's, it's got a full spectrum of amino acids. It's got a huge spectrum of, of vitamins. Uh, so it, it's an unbelievable baseline resource of nutrition. So, you know, there, I, there's lots and lots and lots of algae stories out there. I mean, we've, we've, people will, uh, will sometimes retrace diseases. A friend of mine that I met through the algae people actually um, had uh, Lyme disease before it was ever, before they ever knew what it was, you know, she had all the symptoms of it, but it, it was such an unknown disease at the time. And she, um, she went through, she had had the bullseye and stuff. And she went through all of these horrible things for years and years and years and years. When she started taking the algae, she actually did, she actually backed her way through the entire disease, all the way back to the bullseye. So all of the symptoms occurred in reverse order, all the way back to the bullseye. And then she was well. Wow. So, oh my goodness. Algae is like there's so many different types on the market. There are. I mean, like, mm -hmm. what would you recommend it to people? Or I mean, like, what are good examples of algae? Because when you say algae, like people be like seaweed, you know, it pond, pond scum, pond scum. Um, well, there, and there are, you know, there are some um, seaweeds and and that are quite good. You have to be careful with some of them because the iodine levels are too high. The algae from Klamath Falls grows in a lake that has a 35 foot mineral base. It is actually a volcanic runoff lake. So it has caught the runoff from Mount Mazama for, you know, 10,000 years. Um, and, and because of that, it's really, it's a, it's a silt rich and it's cold. I mean, cold. I walked through the headwaters of that. I went up for a, an August celebration years and years and years ago. And I walked through the headwaters that I levitated out of that water. It is, it's just above freezing. And, and that's the reason that that, um, that algae is so high in omega-3 fatty acids in, is that it has to have omega-3s to keep the cell wall flexible in that extremely cold environment. So, and you think about it, where, where do you usually get your fish oils? Where do you get your omega-3s the, from cold water fish? that are eating cold water algae. Mm -hmm. So um, at one of, there was actually an educator at one time that realized that, um, that children, children's behavior was very tied to what they had for lunch. So they started studying, they started studying these, these uh, you know, nutritional resources and algae was one of the things that came up. So he was actually growing spirulina, mm -hmm. which is pond grown, another algae was pond grown. And, but the thing about anything like that is it only get, it's only as good as what you feed it because it's not a wild, the, most of those are not wild algaes. Chlorella, a lot of the chlorellas are also, um, and there may be some wild harvested also, but a lot of those are pond grown as well. So, um, so that is my favorite algae. Chlorella has some advantages in that it's a better chelator. Um, so it'll pick up heavy metals a little bit better than the blue-green algae will. Although the blue-green algae will chelate. It's just a slower chelator. Spirulina is another one that's quite popular, uh, and it's actually quite a nice algae. We use some in with our algae formulations, but it doesn't have the omega-3 levels that the blue-green from Klamath does. 
So um, there, and there's, you know, there's Porphyra's, lots of data on that. Uh, there's a, a company that I've worked with for probably maybe close to a decade that that does deer has deer velvet. They harvest deer antlers, and um, and one of the formulas that we worked on has Porphyra in it, which is nori. It's a red algae, um, but that that particular because they, they we were looking for the blue green algae in New Zealand, which is where this is all made, and they don't have anything like the the AFA algae there. So I was kind of disappointed in that. But when I was researching it, I thought it needed to have an algae in it. Uh, it has five oral regeneratives in it. So it has the deer antler, the perna, uh, the greenlit muscle, uh, like glycoflex. The it has thymus in it, which we can talk about if you want to. Um, it has colostrum and it has porphyra. So when I was looking for the algae to put in it, those are the five things that have run across my radar over the last, you know, 25 or 30 years that have, have played a big part, probably the biggest part in the way I practice. So uh, when I was doing the research for looking for what they might harvest in New Zealand, as far as algaes, this porphyria came up and I was looking at a study, a, a, a little abstract on, on the porphyria and it said that it turned hokey oil green. They were studying it as an antioxidant. I went, okay, how does a red algae turn an oil green? That's not magic. So there's gotta be something, <laughs> there's gotta be chlorophyll or something in it. So I actually asked Barry to, to um, check with, uh, it, see if he could, it was the, the article was written, the research was done in Christchurch, was pretty close to him, it was right there where he lives. He said, PJ, she's right here in Christchurch, so I rang her. So next thing I know, I'm talking to this researcher who was really excited that somebody had actually looked at her research data and said, yeah, it's a, it is actually a, a green algae in a red coat. So, because what I was, I was looking for chlorophyll because chlorophyll is very much like, um, like hemoglobin. The only difference is the central atom. So the body can actually substitute, evidently, I, you know, nobody, I don't know that anybody's actually done that study, but the body can evidently just substitute the magnesium, I think it's magnesium is the central atom, for iron. And you have gone from chlorophyll to hemoglobin. So, and the, the reason I, I knew that, at least that it works that way, is that my mother my mother provides me with a lot of a lot of uh, data. She she had uh, what they thought was Mediterranean thalassemia. So she was constantly anemic. She ran on a hemoglobin of four, and so she had blood transfusions for years. She did have to have blood transfusions. So when she started taking the algae in the spring of '96, because we knew she was sick, her hemoglobin came up to normal, and. So she asked the doctor, she's a nurse. So, you know, she's got a pretty scientific mind. She said, do you think it's the algae? And she said, he laughed at her. And I thought, well, what explanation did he have for that? Because nothing that they've ever given her. She couldn't take iron. It made her sick. Um, so, and she's kept, a, she's been on algae since 96, since 96. And she's kept a pretty good blood, you know, blood count since then. So we've, we have used it for anemic dogs for ever, just because based on what I knew from my mom. So anyway, that was the reason I was looking for chlorophyll containing 
uh, algae to put in this regenerative in this in this regenerative formula. And the the cool thing about that was that this particular researcher knew the people who harvest. That's a real tight harvest. You know, they, it's not an unlimited harvest, and she knew them. That's how we got that formula. That's how we got that porphyra for our formula, because she, because the researcher knew them. You know, you've got so. amazing breadcrumbs all these years. <laughs> <laughs> all these years, all these years. Well, then the one of my favorites is when I was in Germany. Um, you know, I, you know. Sometimes things were. It's so funny because I started using heel formulas because of an osteosarcoma dog that was in my practice. And this dog actually gave me lots of different things to work on when she was a, she was an Irish wolfhound. And when she came in as a puppy, she had puppy pyoderma. That was almost impossible to get rid of. And I find, and then she had IBS, <laughs> but the, the puppy pyoderma, we used staphage lysate that had just, I think it had just, well, to, uh, it was new to us, um, which it's a immune modifier. So we use that on her that and we can circle back to that in a, in a minute or two, if we, if we get a chance to, but anyway, when she first came in, I thought, oh no, cause you know, they're, they're renowned for having osteosarcoma or bone, bone cancer. So sure enough, this dog developed bone cancer when she was eight, nine, 10, I don't remember how old she was, but they didn't want it. They did not want to do chemo. They didn't want to do uh, bone spare. They didn't want to take the leg off. They just, wanted me to find something to improve her quality of life. Well, I, you know, this was be long before internet and I was casting about trying to find anything that might help this dog. And I, I contacted Brzezinski. Do you know who uh, Brzezinski is in Houston? Um, he is a uh, researcher that developed anti-neoplastons for cancer. So interesting, interesting story. That's a rabbit hole you should go down. But I even contacted him, but those are species and cancer specific. So there wasn't anything that he could help me with. Well, the funny thing was I had a, cl a client that, that was, you know, a client slash friend that had given me a copy of the Heal Orange book. She had several copies of it. Uh, because she was a massage therapist, why she had them, I don't know, but she had several copies and she gave me one of her copies. And I kept that book for eons. And I, you know, every once in a while I'd open it and look, it, look through it and I'd put it back on the shelf because it looked complicated. It's weird. It's kind of weird looking the way it's set up. Um, but I had heard of Tramiel, you know, multiple times. And, and usually it's kind of funny if things run across my radar about three times, I, it's time for me to look into it. So, you know, that's like the, okay, I'm, I keep telling you to look at this and you just keep ignoring me. So, so anyway, this, I finally, I gave up, I, none, nothing showed up in my searches. I would look through journal articles. And so I pulled that book off the shelf and I called the company, which was located at that time was located in New Mexico. And I said, I have an osteosarcoma dog. What, what can I try? And so the, they actually had a physician, an MD on staff at the time. And he said, try this and this and this and this. And, and I said, okay, send them to me. So they sent me like six or seven things. So we put that dog on those formulas. She lived like 18 months. She was running and playing and compressed the bone. Wow. So, uh, you know, but there was no, there were no, there was nobody to ask. There were no veterinarians to ask questions. Well, you know, you get more and more. Every time I would order anything, I had a friend there that had just started working at Heal 
we're still friends all these, you know, 30 years down the road. And she would send me a journal article or a, a, a one of their journals. Then she sent me a disc that had like 20 years of old biomedical therapy journals on it, which was word searchable. And oh my goodness, talk about opening up a whole new world. So every time we turned around, we would, you know, I'd, I'd be looking through a journal article and I would run across something else and I'd say, hey, that looks like that might be useful. So after a while, we, we actually had to, um, had to build more shelves for my heel stuff. <laughs> when my staff person said, okay, if you buy anything else, you're going to have to stand there and hold it until you figure out where to put it. <laughs> we were just like up to here in, in heel formulas. So, you know, I kept, there was, there was one fellow who named Brian that, that had used a little bit of the heel stuff. So when I called with a question, she was, uh, Lori would send me to him to ask. Well, after a couple of years, she said, Hey, would, would you like to be our, uh, our veterinary consultant? And I said, are you nuts? I said, I don't know enough about this to be, to help anybody. She said, yeah, but you know more than anybody else does. So of course, you know, if you want to learn something, teach it. That's the best way in the world because you, it forces you to, to understand stuff. So, you know, there I got started, I started doing their consulting for them. And then they invited me to come to a speaker's training. They asked if I wanted to lecture for them. Well, I had done the lectures for kids issues, but I'd never done any medical lectures of any kind. So they sent me to Phoenix and, and all this, these speakers from around the country were there. And every year they sent two people to Germany to go to the speakers training, the international speakers training. And they chose me and a, a, an acupuncturist from California to go. Now, mind you, I have never done a lecture for them. They have no idea whether I can lecture. So I'm thinking this could be a waste of their money. <laughs> I have no idea. They had no idea whether I could lecture or not. But anyway, they sent me to Germany and one of the lectures, it, they did a lot of stuff on cancer that year and on autologous blood therapies. So that's where I actually learned the, the bulk of, of blood therapy stuff. I actually learned about ozone there, which I just got ozone last year. Another funny story. So, but anyway, um, they talked about thymus extract for cancer when I was at this, um, this conference. And I thought, thymus extracts for cancer. Okay, I'm going to get some of that when I get home. No. I couldn't find it anywhere. I looked for months and months and months. And I finally gave up. I said, you know, I guess we just, they have thymus extracts in Europe. I, we just couldn't get them here. Well, I'll bet you it was seven or eight years later. I had a rep walk in my door from a different company. And this is another, you know, God drops things in your lap things. This guy said, hey, are you interested in thymus extracts? What? Yes, I am. He said, okay, two weeks later, I get a box in the mail that has this lyophilized powder and, and, a, and a diluent. <laughs> of course, I didn't have any cancer patients going at the time. So I thought, well, hmm, I guess I'll wait until I see a cancer patient. Well, I had a cat come in that had chronic gastrointestinal issues. I mean, really, really sick cat. But you know, he was one of those cats that really wanted to be alive. They actually brought him in. He had failed conventional therapy. He had failed all of my homotox, which normally we do a really, we, we have really good luck with that. But, you know, it's, th those are the cases that make you look at something else. That's, 
That's why they come to see you. They want you to learn something else. They're teachers. So they brought this cat in actually with a box and they wanted me to put him down and I absolutely couldn't do it. Most of the time, I, if they're really sick animals, I usually can, but there was just something about this cat and I just couldn't do it. So I actually did a, a barium swallow on him and, and so we put barium in his, in his down him and it never moved. So I thought he can't have been obstructed all this long, but you know, I opened him up. I did. I hate surgery. I did surgery on him and there was nothing in there. So I went, Oh, I've just got my fingers all over his intestinal tract and there's nothing in there. He had basically what we have called a functional illness. His gut had just stopped moving. It just was static. So he actually, when I got in there, when we got in there, we found he had a split spleen. So he had been found in a dumpster as a kitten. So he had probably been thrown and injured. So, and I don't know if that may have had something to do with all the other stuff that was going on with him. But anyway, we fed him, we actually fed him rectally because you could not give him anything by mouth. He would gag, retch, vomit if you tried to give him anything by mouth. He was that way to the end of his days. You could never give him anything by mouth. So we actually fed him through his rear. <clears throat> so we put algae up his up his butt, what we did. So, you know, now I'd probably do a microbiome uh, fecal microbial transplant on him, but you know, I, the only the first I did that fecal microbial transplant on that horse when I got into out of vet school and then I didn't do it again for like 35 years. So uh, you know, it's another one of those things that I, you wonder, why did you not continue to do that when it worked? <laughs> but <laughs> sometimes. So anyway, this cat, um, nothing worked. I just couldn't get anything work on I, I And I looked over there at that on that counter where that box was sitting from Hawaii. And I said, well, you know, nothing else has worked. I think I'll just try some of this thymus extract on him. And I gave him a dose of thymus extract. And I am telling you, he absolutely turned around almost immediately. It was, it was phenomenal. And so, you know, it's like one of the, your, your eyes are this big around thinking, oh my gosh. All right. So, so my usual modus operandi is I try something first. If it works, then I have to know why it works. So I, I, I use it before I study it. So, you know, if, if, if it's proven to be like a miracle, then I got to know why. I started, I started going down rabbit holes looking at thymus extract. And we've, we have probably used it on probably the injectables on well over a thousand patients. Well, it's, got, it's more than that. Thousands of patients over the last 10 years. And then we use an oral, we do oral formulas as well. And we mix it with our homotox stuff. It's a, it's a huge biomodulator. I mean, huge. So um, it, we just, we use it on just about anything because ultimately the immune system has to be balanced and it's a, it's a, it's a tremendous balancer. I've gotten to be friends with the, the uh, researcher his name is Dr. Ushijima, that developed that thymus extract. And he, he developed it in Montana back, I was in vet school, I think, when all that was going on. It was called weak calf syndrome. These calves would hit the ground and they'd never get up. So they were losing thousands of head of cattle. You know, this, it, it was a, they never did isolate it. It must have been a virus or a retrovirus or something. But they were so desperate for help that they came to Dr. Ushijima, who was a human virologist, which is what he told them. I don't do cattle. So, but anyway, they, they bugged him until he, he said, okay, well, bring me a calf that has died of it and, and I'll autopsy it. 
So you know, he did the necropsy and found lots of things going on in the muscles. And, and um, but then when he opened up the chest, they had no thymus, virtually no thymus. Well, thymus is big in babies. It's big. And so he said, well, where do they put the thymus in cattle? <laughs> so they, they brought him another calf that died of other causes. And sure enough, there's a big thymus right there where it belongs. So these babies were had thymus damage when they were born. And so they were completely without an immune system. So he just happened to read an article. This is another one of those, you know, the chances of you coming across that data when you need it by a fellow named, by a, a researcher named Goldstein, who was doing a lot of work on thymus extracts at the time. So they, they thought, well, if they don't have a thymus, maybe we can give them some thymus extract because it's not very practical to transplant thymuses into thousands of babies. So they did a crude extract of this thymus and then said, okay, give them X amount of doses, you know, this much. And I don't, I think it was two or three doses. And the, the producers are in in a week or two going, hey, doc, we got a problem. And he, they're just grinning ear to ear. And he said, what problem? They said, we're having to rope them to give them the, it, I guess it was a third dose. They were having to rope them to give them the third dose. Now you realize these are calves that were dying, uniformly just dying. And now the problem is they can't catch them to give them the last dose. Wow. So it was a good problem to have. They actually gave him all kinds of awards up there because he actually saved their, their the producers that year. So then uh, some physicians got interested in the thymus extract and used it for, they used it for cancer. The, remember I told you about the SPL? Uh, and I didn't actually know this until last year. Um, when I went to interview Dr. Ushijima in Hawaii, and it's not that easy to, to be the interviewer, I decided. It, we did seven hours of interview with him on thymus extract. But in the cancer stuff, they use multiple different kinds of adjuvants with the, with the thymus extract. So one of them was SPL on a lymphoma case, a human lymphoma case. And I thought, who would have thought that's called staphage lysate? It is a... Um, it's an extract from a, from a bacteria. So I don't, I, I don't know why he would have, I, and I've talked to the, the, I've talked to the company that makes it because I didn't use that again for like 30 years. And I ran across it. I didn't even think it was still available. I ran across it at a conference several years ago. And I thought that stuff's still around. So then it was that that uh, two months later I was in Hawaii lecture uh, was talking with interviewing Dr. Ushijima and he's and he mentioned using that particular thing on a cancer case. So I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna have to go back and get some more SPL when I get back. So they also used uh, BCG, which is a extract from uh, which is a cell wall extract from tuberculosis TB, I think. Um, mycobacterium bovis, I think. Um, and they also used mushroom, mushroom extract with the, with the thymus. So they had something like 37 remissions of cancer and some of them were bad cancers. They had a scleroderma, a, a systemic scleroderma, which is a death sentence, which is one of the things they had decided they weren't going to treat because it's not quote unquote, it's not, it's not treatable. Well, it, I think it was the niece of one of the doctors. So that, that becomes a different thing when it's, when it's family. So they actually put her in remission from, from scleroderma. 
they had some topical cancers that went away. They had a, a, a squamous cell carcinoma in cattle that that just dried up and and disappeared. Um, one of the doctors said, "Hey, do you think this would work if we put it on topically?" And he said, "Doctor Ushijima said, mm, no." <laughs> so, so I did it anyway, and they had a, a condition completely clear up, but it, only in the area where they used it. It's kind of funny. You didn't get a systemic reaction with that. They had two children with uh, type 1 diabetes, newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes that went into remission. They started, their pancreas started producing again. I don't know of anything that does that. Um, and then one of the physicians said, hey, do you think this would work if we nebulized it? Dr. Shijima said, no. So I did it anyway. They had, I don't know, 10 or 12 patients with end-stage emphysema that got no less than 100% improvement in lung function. Wow. The average was 300% improvement in lung function. So by nebulizing it down into the lungs. So, you know, I'm thinking with this coronavirus, why aren't we trying that? Why aren't we trying nebulizing thymus extract? So anyway, the, the extract is now, hopefully we're going to have a lyophilized powder again. It's been gone for several years. I had a little bit left and I've been hoarding it for a couple of years now. Um, but, it, you know, it's just, a, it's such a remarkable, um, it's so broad spectrum. You can use it for so many things. Um, and if you think about it, it's the linchpin of the immune system. It's what, it's what helps you decide what is self versus what is non-self. It helps you decide what's an invader and what's not. So it has huge applications. I mean, there's so many things. We've used it in horses with heaves. Because of the emphysema cases, we actually nebulized it down a horse with really, really bad heaves. We did blood therapy on her. The owner was actually thinking about putting her down. She, was, she had been getting, you know, kind of worse. She'd been getting worse for many years. And then we started doing blood therapy on her. She did really well. But then one year just lost control of the of the process. And I even used we even used steroids and antihistamines and stuff on her and we didn't get turned around. So I mean the, the owner was really seriously considering putting her putting her down. So I said, well, you know, they did some emphysema cases by nebulizing. So they nebulized her with they they made a nebulizer out of they had a nebulizer uh, set. And they made the, the nasal thing out of a gallon milk jug that they put over her nose. So, you know, we're talking about a horse. You can't exactly put a nasal cannula in him. So, but it was, it was remarkable. We've got videos of that horse. It was remarkable. So she did every, and she's still, that's been two or three years ago. She's still going strong. So she's probably a 20 some year old mare now. Um. Dr. PJ, my head is exploding with all the stories <laughs> you're telling me. These giant, giant bread crumbs. It's just amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, this, this is this is by far the best uh, morning interview I've had in a long time. <laughs> if I'm, I'm, I'm from Singapore, so it's morning over here. Uh, but wow. Oh, my gosh. Um, could, you, could we just backtrack a bit for people who don't know what is... Um, blood transfusion or um, homotoxicology. Blood therapy? Yeah. Okay. So homotoxicology is a form of, it's not homeopathy because homeopathy is single dose, you know, single remedy, um, single um, frequency. 
So, or a single dilution. The, the homotox is more of a complex of things. So let's say, for example, you sprain an ankle. And so you get heat, pain, redness, swelling, you get um, edema. So the swelling starts up, you know, a couple of days later, it turns yellow, you know, where the blood is, has accumulated. So Dr. Uh, Reckowig in Germany was an MD whose father was cured of an incurable kidney disease by the use of homeopathy. So he said that he was going to, um, he was going to meld the disciplines of homeopathy and Western medicine. So he was trained as a, was as a Western MD. And so when he got out, you know, he was doing classical homeopathy as an MD, but oh my goodness, you know, when you've got a cold or something like that, the symptoms change every 10 or 15 minutes, or, you know, have to change day after day after day. And so he started looking at the patterns of disease and he started combining things based on the patterns. So Tramiel is for trauma. So which passes from like the acute phases, all these phases that the body does in response to inflammation or in, in response to the trauma. So he put components in there to address all of those kind of moving parts of disease. It's an, it's an amazing um, discipline of medicine. I mean, there's a, it's a whole discipline from heart to liver to allergies to it, it encompasses all aspects of anatomy and physiology. And so it, so he, that was imported to the United States. He actually moved, he sold heel in Germany um, and then moved to the United States. And then I guess drove around the United States in his Winnebago with all of his gold. And it's lucky he didn't get mugged. Um, and finally he landed in Albuquerque, New Mexico and decided that's where he wanted to put down roots. And he started a company called BHI here which is, which were just, how they, they never had any, well, they had one injectable, I think it was called BHI allergy. Um, but eventually HEAL and BHI merged in the United States and they were, um, and they were based out of Albuquerque. So they made formulas, formulations there. It's a, it's a, it's an amazing discipline, it truly is. So when you're doing a blood therapy, blood carries in it all the information of whatever's going on. So let's just take, for example, you have hay fever. So whatever you're allergic to right now, pollen, mold, mildew, grass, weed, whatever that is, those components, those proteins, the reason you're reacting is that those proteins have gotten through a space they shouldn't have gotten through. They've gotten through your mucous membranes because your mucous membranes are leaky. They're not, they're not holding tight where so things are getting through there and it's causing an overt allergic reaction well there those proteins are also circulating in your bloodstream so when you take a little bit of blood and you process it put it back with the homotox or with the thymus extract and then you give it back either as an injection or you give it back orally orally it's called sublingual immunotherapy you're giving body specific immunotherapy because the, the information you're giving it, you're, you're taking that information, you're putting it back in a different space. So that doctor, that, that cow doctor that I said, said was taking to take a slug of blood out of the jugular and put it back in a hip. You're creating an artificial hematoma in that hip 
and the and the lymph system and the the white blood cells go running in there to see what the heck is that they start taking it apart well in the process if you've got a bacterial infection or a viral infection or something else going on an allergy or a sensitivity the lymphocytes are going to the the uh, the white blood cells are going to pick those up. The macrophages are going to pick that up. They're going to process it. They're going to go to the, fir the first lymph node and they're going to start cloning and sending out recruits to look for that particular thing and to get that to recalibrate. So you're basically, you're basically telling the immune system here, this is what I want you to look for. So if you look at things like cancer therapies. Now, there are some autologous cancer therapies where they actually take the tumor, they process it, they give it back to you, and they want your immune system to go look for, you know, where, the, where any place that that tumor is seeded out into the tissues. So autologous, autologous blood therapies have been done in one form or fashion since back at the Ebers papyrus, you know, in 200, 300 years ago, they were taking blood out and putting it in fracture lines to improve healing of bones. So, you know, the, 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 uh, the idea isn't necessarily new. So, you know, it's just that there's, there's now some refinements to that. So homotox, you know, which I've used since, oh my goodness, 1990 or so, maybe no 95. Cause they, you know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> Here's my mother's story again. Um, when that dog was, I was treating the osteosarcoma dog. When I got the stuff from Heal, uh, and when my mother was diagnosed, we put her on some of the same formulas because she had the edema. They they took too many. They took all of her lymph nodes, and it left her with a lot of edema in her arms. So, uh, so she we she she gets homotox formulas on a fairly regular basis for anything that's going on. <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. So so it's complex. Basically, it's complex nanopharmacology. So it's combinations of very diluted substances. So, oh, my brain, my brain, my brain is just <laughs> exploding right now. I'm just absorbing whatever you told me. Um, could you also explain to me thymus extract? So thymus, the thymus is, is an organ that sits at the basically above the heart and it is the primary immune system and with age it it involutes or it shrinks so by the time somebody's in their 50s or 60s it's really just a strand of tissue however it's not completely not it's not that it's not working sometimes the actually other tissues pick up the the functions of the thymus well you can the thymus will shrink with lots of stuff stress too much stress will involute the thymus a lack of zinc will involute the thymus. So here's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I used to wonder why babies that didn't get colostrum had such lousy immune systems. Well, when I started going down the rabbit hole looking at thymus, um, I realized that every species I studied preferentially puts zinc into the colostrum. I mean, really high levels of zinc. The zinc is required for the thymus to work. So on a zinc deficient diet, the thymus will also shrink or involute. So it's, it's the design of things. Yeah. You know, if you, if a baby that doesn't get up and stand and suck, 
or or it has to be bothered because they're orphaned, they don't get that that um, they don't get that zinc. So because it's in the colostrum. So the so thymus extract basically they take when when the, the like the slaughterhouses they take the thymuses and they extract the protein molecules. So they're down to to very 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 tiny amino acids. So and and they're virtually the same across species. I lectured in uh, in uh, South America a few years ago, and uh, we were I lectured about thymus extracts, and a girl came up and talked to me after the lecture and said, you know. They had a, um, I think it was a tiger that had a terrible non-healing wound. They couldn't get it to, to heal up. And they actually used thymus extract from crocodiles and treated that. And, and I think they, they injected it, that tiger with crocodile thymus. So, so it's virtually, you know, I've never, in all the years I've used it, I've only had one dog have a reaction uh, and it's because the thymus extract aggregate, you have to keep it in the freezer once you reconstitute it because it'll aggregate. Uh, so I, we had a, basically a subcutaneous reaction, but we have dogs that have multiple, we've got a, right now we own a 14, over 14 year old golden retriever that had a, a massive, looked like a stroke a year and a, a year ago, a year ago Christmas. And, you know, my husband was just sure she was not going to make it. She couldn't get up. She didn't know which way was up. She had vertigo. She was vomiting. Sorry about this. I have a, I have a light who decided to jump off here. Um, she, she was just doing so poorly. Hmm. Interesting. Well, hmm. who knows why these things do stuff like that? All right. I give up. I'm just going to turn that that way and I'll just be in the dark, I guess. Yeah, I can, I can see um, you. <laughs> not, I'm not entirely in the dark. Um, so we, we gave her, I gave her a couple of blood, we did a couple of blood therapies. We did, you know, we did blood work on her and nothing showed up on the blood work. Um, and so we did thymus, started doing thymus extract injections on her. She's still going, she's still going. And, and she's had a couple of episodes, you know, this year, like about a year later, um, like starting in December. But we've gotten down to Jeff just gives her a thymus injection about every couple of weeks. So, okay. So my my question is, you are trained conventionally, and then you had these breadcrumbs that showed you alternative modalities and and ways of uh -huh. healing. How would you describe yourself as a vet today? Um, you know, I'm kind of an anything that works kind of a person. So I have. I have an eclectic interest in medicine. You know, I spend a good part of my day, hours and hours a day, looking at information, you know, studying. I want to know how things work, why they work. Yeah, I, I like that they do work, but I really want to know why. For one thing, I, I think because, uh, because I lecture quite a bit, I never know what I'm going to be lecturing on. So I like the integration of medicine. and and. You know, it's kind of funny because my stepdad was a, I told you he was a cardiologist internist, and he actually diagnosed patients that Mayo Clinic missed because he had such good observational skills and he took histories. He listened to what his patients had to say. So uh, as it turns out, you know, when, one of those things that I didn't know until he was in his 70s, long since retired, that when he was young, his dad was a physician. The person who he 
chose to take care of his family, that my grandfather chose to take care of his family, was a homeopath. He was an MD homeopath. That was before the Flexner Report, which is if somebody wants to look at how medicine has changed, the Flexner Report changed because it pushed all medicine towards the pharmaceutical industry. But the person my grandfather trusted the most had been trained as an MD homeopath. After the Flexner Report, those, those physicians were, were ostracized. So, so my dad was interested in, you know, homeopathy stuff. And I never knew that until long, you know, it was years and years after he'd retired. Well, then, you know, he said, well, you know, honey, um, nitroglycerin is a, is a homeopathic dilution. And sure enough, it is, you know, nitroglycerin is an explosive, right? It's a six C or 12 C dilution. Every cardiologist uses nitro. Every cardiologist this is brought here to the United States by an, I think it was Austrian, an Austrian homeopath named uh, Constantine Herring. That's how we got nitro in, in cardiology. And then he used um, Brawolfia for, it was called Rauside. It was actually Brawolfia serpentina. He used, he said it was the best antihypertensive he ever used. When they took it off the market, he had it compounded for his patients. Never had a clue that he used an herbal. Never knew that. So, and then my dad, who, and you know, my stepdad kept huge archives. So when I was in high school, I actually did a, a term paper for anatomy and physiology on myasthenia gravis, <laughs> which that was a big, sub, that was a deep subject for somebody in, you know, 15 or 16 years old, but he had a, he had a file on it because he kept files of stuff. And so I do the same thing, only it just goes in a computer. So I, that, I think that's why I got interested in keeping, you know, data, data. I'm a data hound. So, and then my dad, my dad was a neurologist and he worked with a, um, a surgeon in California on these patients that were diagnosed with MS, not, and not all of them did they do surgery on, but they were doing surgery to open up the blood vessels to the brain. And a lot of those patients, their symptoms of MS completely went away. Well, the California AMA shut them down, said it was quackery. And they, they, finally, re, they finally published the paper, those, those, those cases. And they basically told my dad to cease and desist they told they didn't want him, you know, uh, they didn't want anything to do with this new, this new treatment, this new surgery. But Daddy had seen these patients, so he wasn't backing down. So he lost a lot of his referrals because of that, but I don't think he ever regretted it because he knew they were right. Then, I don't know, a decade or so ago, there was somebody that had published a paper about this new surgery to open up the blood vessels for these patients with MS, and I went, nonsense. Dr. Hurwitz and my dad did that 25 or 30 years ago. You did not originate that. So anyway, they, were, they weren't medical mavericks, but they were people that were open-minded. So, you know, when you have that kind of a, of a background, it kind of gives you the latitude to do what you want to do. And, you know, for me, I, I started out in a practice, um, you know, I worked in the, in the movie for three or four months, um, but I, you know, I only worked in somebody else's practice for a few months and then we didn't have a job. <laughs> it was like sink or swim. 
we had to either pick up everything, take our five horses and cats and dogs and belongings and go back to Kansas or, <coughs> or we were going to start our own practice. And that's what we did. And because of that, I have been allowed to do what, wherever the medicine took me. So, you know, if something came across my, um, my radar and, and interested me, I could do whatever I wanted to do. So, you know, I've been, I have been blessed in, in that regard that I could, that I could pursue things that I found interesting. And you never kept what other people thought. Well, um, probably no, not too much. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, when I, for years, when I first started doing a lot of this, the, the, honestly, the veterinarians in the area, I, they thought I was a nutcase. And, um, and, you know, I would feel kind of insulted by it to some degree because I'm thinking, you have no idea what I'm doing and you don't see my patients. You know, sometimes like I, I would refer one for a surgery or something. And one or two of them actually made some disparaging remarks about, the, about my, my medicine. And I thought, and, you know, when the clients come and they're insulted and they come and tell you about it because they like the kind of medicine I do, um, you know. So I, I got to where I just had to kind of let that go. You can't you can't live your life on what other people think about you. You know, as long as you do your best and you and you're, you know, medicine is a calling. It's you know, it's it's a you have to enjoy it. You have to like it. You have to like your patients. I don't like all of them all the time, but, <laughs> but you know, those, those cases, you know, about the time you think, am I just nuts? <laughs> am I absolutely just crazy? Then you get that case that, that, you know, you're not, you know, the, the one that you get that nothing has helped and you find the answer, you find the answer for that patient. But it's individualized. That's the thing. All medicine is individualized. You can't, it's not, you can kind of start with a protocol, but it can't be protocol driven because not, there's not a creature on the planet that has exactly the same um, history, uh, exposures, toxins, diseases, nutritional status. You know, now we're, you know, now my, my, my goal going forward is to do wellness. What can we do to keep them from getting sick in the first place? That needs to be what our focus is because our, 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 we've been disease driven. You know, we're always treating, we're always trying to catch up after they're already sick, <coughs> which I'm not, I'm just coughing. I should have brought some water up here. Um, so I'd, I would, I'd like to keep them alive, you know, vaccinating and we vaccinate, but we vaccinate minimally. Vaccines shouldn't be the, what we, what we survive on financially. And I, I detest surgeries. I do very, I do very few surgeries. I like medicine and I get, we get a lot of chronic stuff. We get a lot of really difficult, you know, and sometimes there are things that we're not going to fix. Can we improve their quality of life? But what would happen if we never let them get sick in the first place? What could we do? Um, we're actually working on, uh, we're hopefully going to have a nutritional supplement out here pretty quick that, um, that is wellness driven. You know, let's, let's keep the telomeres longer, the, you know, the caps on the end of the DNA. Mm. Let's take care of them. So, let's, so they replicate 
more uh, more faithfully. So they end up, you know, your 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 longevity is determined by how many times your DNA can replicate successfully and correctly. So if we can if we can protect the DNA in the first place, we might keep people animals from getting sick. So that's the that's been our focus last year probably a year and a half. We've been talking about it for about five years. And then coronavirus hit last year, about the time we were really (laughs) ready to to really get started on this. No, we have all this mess going on. So, but anyway, that's, that is, that's next on my agenda is how do I keep, how do we keep them well in the first place? How do we keep them from getting sick? I want 20 year old dogs in my practice. Wow. And you've been practicing since 1981. Mm-hmm. Yep. Long time. Wow. And you've never thought about closing shop or anything? Anything? No. I have people come in and say, you're not retiring, are you? <laughs> uh, I don't know what I would do. I, I have, I actually, we're going on six, I've got, we've got five grandkids and another one on the way. So I would have plenty to do, but I'm not sure that that's what I want to do. So <laughs> I've actually talked about homeschooling the grandkids, but no, I don't know. You know, I had a colleague named Dr. Tucker. I absolutely adored him. Uh, he was still practicing. I think he was 90. Wow. He, you know, he only went in a couple of days a week, but, and he was still doing energy work, energy medicine. He was a hoot. He was the funniest. I absolutely adore. He would call me up every once in a while and just randomly, you know, Hey, PJ. How do you treat snake bite? <laughs> we would get off on some talks, you know, some some tangent. And then he's, I got a box in the mail one time from him. It was a box of rocks, but they are some kind. There are some kind of um, meteor material, and they change the structure of water. So interesting. I wish I could find out more information about it. And, you know, it, he was off on a tangent about it and about this the researchers that had looked at these <laughs> it's the only dr tucker would send me a box of rocks but you know he was practicing still bright still you know i i i think i would be bored if i didn't practice at all unless i could unless i could lecture and and you know i because i enjoy teaching but then what would i talk about because i wouldn't have any patience mm. you know i'd be i'd have to present all my old patients i have got lots of those but no, I, I don't, I don't anticipate, um, and until maybe one of my kids wants to, if they wanted to open a practice in my building, so I could maybe work one or two days a week, that would be okay. <laughs> uh, respectfully, uh, may I ask how old are you now? 66. Wow, you don't look it. <laughs> you don't look it. You look fantastic. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, really, I think, you know, the fact that you grew up in such a open minded science-based but open-minded family you know mm-hmm. and you were horse crazy and i can't imagine <laughs> how many times you were thrown off or nipped oh oh I mean, you know i was never i was never bit but i i had some pretty major wrecks i mean some i had some big wrecks i don't know how my mom did you know she'd come to horse shows and uh, there was one I I know she thought I was dead, and she 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 went over a like a five foot fence, she, and she's small. She was over that five foot fence, and she was over by me, but before hardly anybody else got there. 
I, I know she thought she, she thought I was dead. I mean, because it, it it had to look bad from the stands. It was dead dead run and a crash. It was terrible. Well, you know, you're pretty horse headed yourself. You're pretty stubborn. You know. Oh yeah. And, and I'm so impressed that you said you failed the vet school. Well, what do you call it? Uh, what you call it? Uh, qualifications to get into vet mm-hmm. school. What three times? Yeah, it was actually. Um, when I, the first year I applied, um, when I went in for, I got an interview and when, and they, you know, they had the first year I applied, there was 1300 applications for like 80 some positions, 1300. Wow. So they were looking for anything to really weed people out. And so when I went in for the, when I, I got the letter and it said, um, your chemistry did not like, I had 10 hours of chem out which transferred as general chemistry and chemonel for med school. But they decided for some reason, somewhat arbitrarily, that I had to take chemonel again. I had 10 hours of chemonel. They transferred as general chemistry. I had to take chemonel again. So I went that year to take chemonel. The next year I applied and they decided my organic chemistry didn't transfer at all. So I went another year to take organic chemistry. So, it, so that's, I went two extra years to get two classes, basically. But I will have to tell you that those two years I rodeoed, I had a lot of fun. Wow. So, and I took a lot of classes. I took, you know, horse science and genetics. And I had about, I had 20 some hours in genetics when I got out of, of, uh, of school, when I, I, I got an animal science degree. And actually the animal science degree this is another funny story. Um, you have to have meat slab. Well, when I was in the poultry science, I couldn't even kill the chicken. I mean, I, somebody else had to kill the chicken. I wasn't going to kill the chicken. I can't, I can't hardly kill bugs. So when I, to get the animal science degree, you had to be in meats. You had to take meat slab, which meant you had to work on a kill floor. And I was, I was sick. I mean, just literally, I had worked myself into a frenzy over <laughs> over the idea of working on a kill floor for a semester. So my favorite teacher in pre-vet was taught horse science and genetics. And I was in there just wailing about having to take meat slab. And next thing I knew, I did not have to take meat slab, but he had me in molecular genetics and plant genetics and biostatistics and all of these genetics classes that were I'm like I'm the only undergrad in the class and the only female. So, but I survived all of them and I had, I, it, I would have gone into genetics if I had not that last year, if I hadn't gotten into vet school, I probably would have, gone, I don't know what I'd have done with it. it I, I did like, I, I still think genetics is fascinating. So. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, seriously, you with, with your tenacity of bo- bulldozing your way through things, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, like, Honestly, I think I don't think a lot of women, especially in those days, would have done that because I think for women it's harder somehow, especially with and you are married with children. <laughs> yeah, well, now I am. I wasn't then. No, I didn't have kids, so I got out. But you know that's true. And actually, at the time, there was twenty. I think there was like it's split now, but there was like twenty women in my class. Mm. And there was four of us in, in surgery, in the surgery group. And, you know, our patients always did fine. We were slow getting, getting them done, but they always did fine. Well, the, the 
surgery teacher called us in and said he didn't think he he didn't feel like he we were competent to pass us. And I my my classmates were in tears. I mean the my the, my group mates. And I said that's just nonsense. Don't even listen to that. You know, it'd be different if our patients died. They've all done fine. Just ignore it. He's just being a jerk. So, you know, they were one of them was ready to quit vet school. I said, no, that's just ridiculous. It didn't bother me a bit because I knew we were okay. We we were, in fact, the the group that was slowest was my husband's group. (laughs) They were slower than we were. So there was, you know, it was just that was just kind of a chauvinist thing. So now, now I'm sure that would, that wouldn't fly anymore. And the, and the um, enrollment is about 80% women now, I think. So, so when you started your own practice, you, you started with your husband as partners, business partners, or? Well, we, we initially, so we, we lost our job in January. So we're down here with all these horses and dogs and cats and everything else and no job. Um, So we, we worked and built a clinic. We borrowed money from our folks. There was not a bank in the area that would loan us $5,000 to rent a building. So we borrowed money from our folks and, and started this practice. And then in May, we opened up in May of that year and we worked together for about four months. And then he got a job with the USDA because, you know, when you start a business, uh, unless you've borrowed money to, to live on, you have nothing to live on. You know, that it takes a while to build up a clientele. We figured if we were going to eat, one of us was going to have to work somewhere else. So he went to work for the USDA and he actually stayed with him for 30 years. So I had, the practice has been mine basically for <laughs> since 1982, well, the practice has been mine. So, wow. And now I do, now I do so much weird stuff. I don't think he could even survive in my clinic. So. <laughs> He re- he retired, but he has no desire to come in and try and figure out what I'm doing. So of all the tools in your toolkit that you have, what would you say is like your favorite, favorite uh, modality that you like to use or you don't have one? I don't have one. I, I like, I like anything that I've got that'll work. I, you know, I probably, the, I probably do more blood therapies than I do anything else, but they are combined with homotox and thymus extract. That makes up probably the biggest part of my practice, but I do a lot of supplements. We make, we make a couple of blue green algae supplements, the new wellness formula. I'm really, really anxious to see what we do with the, with the wellness formula. The pentagenesis is the five, the has the five regeneratives in it. We use a lot of it. So we do a lot of supplements. I mean, lots and lots and lots of supplements. We also do some bioenergetic testing. It's called a Quest or a Quest 4, Q-E-S-T-4. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of electroacupuncture, according to Vol, EAV. And that allows us, uh, gives us a lot more kind of underlying data. Like, like one of the first patients I ever, terrible, terrible, terrible skin case. And when I, when we quest tested her, she came up for nicotine toxicity and I went, nicotine toxicity. I asked the owner, I said, Margie, do you smoke? Did that thing tell on me? I said, yes, it did. So she smokes this. So this dog has this huge nicotine toxicity and it's not going to change because the owner's not going to quit smoking. But, um, but I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't even thought to ask. 
but because we know that we can give her some um, some homeopathic dilutions of nicotine to try and kind of moderate that kind of balance out that response. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> you know, what amazes me is that you have such a science scientific brain. I mean, like you, you love to read and research, but like you said, you like to try things first. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, why, why? Spend money, why spend time on something that doesn't work? So you, 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 know, you, you just got to know why. Yeah. So you, you, in that sense, you're a risk taker in that sense, like, you know, let's try it, throw it <laughs> against the wall, see what sticks, you know, yep. and then figure out why it sticks. And fortunately for me, my clients, you know, will, will, and because a lot of times when they come to you, they're, they're coming, you're a line of last resort. So, you know, they're, they're willing to try anything that might help that animal. And there are some cases that when they come in, I think I wouldn't give you 10 cents for them. There's no, there's no way that was going to survive. Uh, like some of the ozone cases we've treated since I got the ozone last year, my friend that I told you about that, that um, took care of my horses and then wrote the letter for vet school yeah. and got me started on glycoflex. Yeah. And he never considered himself a holistic practitioner, but, or an integrated practitioner, but he developed AlphaGal, which is an which is a, a allergy to red meat, and it's from a tick bite. And he had horrible these horrible skin irritations and and itchiness, and he would just claw himself. Well, they cross react to cats, which is a great thing for a veterinarian to have, you know. So his daughter's a, a, a MD, and they they just honestly, I don't know about her, but everybody else thought he was crazy, which he is, but. You know, not not this was actually a real thing. This wasn't a psychosomatic illness. <clears throat> so anyway, they finally figured out what it was, but they could not get it under any semblance of control. So he ran across ozone. And I said, you know, Marty, I had ozone therapy when I was in Germany years ago for that speaker's training. They gave me ozone with blood and homotox. And for months, for months after that, my hands and feet were warm, which they're always, you know, I'm always systemically cold. And so I've always been interested in ozone, but I just never got into it. Well, when he got into ozone, he, you know, he get everything. And when he gets into things, he gets into them gung ho. And uh, he has gone to Romania every year, every other year for decades now because they go on mission trips. Well, they invited him to come lecture at their holistic conference in Cluj, Napoca, uh, Romania, last March. And he said, "Well, you need to invite Dr. Broadfoot." So I actually got to go and then I went, I sat through his ozone lectures and that's the time we actually got back the week before um, they shut down travel coming back from Europe. So I, I missed all of that mess getting going through, um, through customs and immigration. And they, I mean, they were seven and eight hour lines. We, I got back five days before. all that. But anyway, when I was there, I thought, you know what? I have been talking about ozone now for 25 years. I'm going to get an ozone machine. And I got it right before you couldn't hardly find any anywhere. Um, because it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable therapeutic tool. Um, and I'm still learning. Uh, you know, I'm still, I, I haven't done IV. I haven't done any IV ozone. Um, I've done some sub-Q, uh, rectal ozones, oral ozones. We ozonate water. But there are so many applications of it. It's really amazing. So just, that's my late, that's my latest, that's my latest venture to learn is ozone. So 
been studying that. You're you're amazing. Would you <laughs> you know to me you're like the left brain but very much right brain as well because you're very creative in how you <laughs> apply you know and how you solve problems. You know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what else can we do this with this? <laughs> it's just like uh, well, I think a lot of the, the many things have taught me that you know that you can that there are many ways to apply medicines and and I've been fortunate like I said that I that having the having my own practice I can do those things and my clients have allowed me to do those things and my patients have obliged by getting well so you know they 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 have been my my patients have taught me a lot about medicine in you know um through your whole years of practice what would you say was uh, if the biggest mistake you've ever made that you learned the most? Oh, well, you know, the only, actually I have, I have so few regrets. I, you know, I learned that I don't like surgery. And so I gave myself permission to stop doing, like, I don't, I do, I don't do dog space anymore. They were too, too nerve wracking for me. Um, I think the difficulty thing, the difficult thing for me, and it really wasn't medicine. It was that when I had kids, I didn't, they, they, they were, they never got to be like, you know, there was no such thing as a six week maternity leave. My maternity leave was like three days. Uh, I left the hospital with Bria and went to work. So, <laughs> so I, you know, that's, that's really the only regret that I can say that I have, I've gotten to do everything I think I ever really wanted to do. And then some, and, you know, things that I never expected to do, things that got dropped in my lap. So I don't know that I could say that I have, you know, I, I don't think I could put a regret on my obituary. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. You're, you're just, you just enjoy learning, don't you? Like, you, mm -hmm. you like a new challenge every time. You like yeah, well, you like researching and and sometimes I like them to come. I think those <laughs> challenges that could come a little slower. There are some days. There are some days when I, you know, I come home at night and my brain is just fried. There are too many challenges. There are too there are too many difficulties. And you know, I love my clients, but all of them think they're my only client. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, I'll get, I get five or 600 emails a day. Now I don't have to answer all of those, but I get, you know, I'm just inundated with, you know, try, I can't keep up with everything. And, and because I have inter eclectic interests and I'm looking at other things, you know, sometimes I don't, you, and I, you have to be intentional. I think that is a really important thing, especially when you do integrative medicine, because it's not a matter of, you know, this steroid, that non-steroidal, this antibiotic. It's, what is the root cause of this? Can we get to the base of it? And if I'm not intentional, if you start doing just, you know, throwing stuff out there, I mean, sometimes you do to see if one of those things works, but just if you're not intentional about the treatment, about the healing, about the, about looking at the patient and trying to figure out what is going on, what caused this, um, then I don't think we're as successful as we should be. So, you know, my, I guess a regret would be that there are not enough hours in the day that you can, that you, 
that you can partition as much time as some patients take because some of them, some of them are so challenging. There's just so, I wish I had a veterinarian to work with me that would carry, carry on what I do. So, you know, it's nice to be able to bounce ideas off of people. It's, it, that's one thing about being solo. You don't have that, that um, interaction with somebody. Although I've had good staff people over the years that have gotten really, really, really sharp. They're really smart about stuff. And, you know, they, and they'll sometimes say, well, what about this? And I wouldn't have, I would not have thought of it. That, but I might think about it at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Why didn't I do that? But, but it'd be, it'd be nice to have a veterinarian to, to, you know, to share this with, because it is such a, it is such a complex realm of, of medicine. There's so many different ways to treat. Um, I'd like some people that were, had some expertise. I had a veterinarian that worked with me that had to work as a, as a tech and I was doing IV vitamin C therapy for cancer then. And she could put a catheter in anything. I mean, to tell you, she was talented. Um, and we were actually having stem cells made, but there was a clinic in Wichita that was, that was, was growing out stem cells for us to use in cancer cases. Wow. So yeah, they, and actually there, it's the, it's the clinic that did the IV vitamin C, the original IV vitamin C studies from there, from my hometown, Wichita, Kansas. That's so cool. So yeah, it is cool. So, you know, life has been good. I, I've, uh, man, it's been fun. Oh, it sounds like you're still enjoying is this is like a rodeo for you, you know, your whole <laughs> your whole career, you know, uh-huh. uh, it, it really is like, you know, even though you get thrown a bit once in a while you you get back on it, you know, and then I don't know, you're so flexible in your approach to to solving problems and looking at things very differently. You're, you're truly a very special lady, Dr. PJ. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm in, a, I'm in a, with a good group of people. I've, there's a lot of good veterinarians out there that, that uh, you know, they, they, they're the ones that, when you find somebody like AA, the AHVMA people, they help you, they keep you grounded because there are other people that they're either as equally as crazy as you are or you really have something you're really on something so and you know and there's so there are some people that we should talk about that you should interview at some point in time well i'm going to sign off now with the interview and say thank you so much for your time (laughs) um and i wish you all the best and on behalf of all the animals that you have helped and i want to mention also all the kids that you have helped because you lectured on children as well you know and to me, that that is going beyond your career scope because technically you're mm-hmm. a vet, but you actually, you know, your love for life and for creatures big and small, whether they're two-legged, four-legged, human animals, you know, <laughs> sink or swim, you know, um, you have a huge heart. And I just want to say thank you on behalf of everyone that you've helped. Well, thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I, I have enjoyed chatting with you from across the world. Thank you for listening to Dr. PJ's story. Look out for Podega's interview next week. Wow, I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. 
Thank you, and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.